Well, good morning. Good morning. I think this is the best-looking congregation in all of St. Tammany Parish, huh? And in this, this beautiful building, we're, we're so blessed to have this, are we not? It seemed just, what, a few weeks ago, we were in a storefront and all the hard work it took to move everything and all the logistics, and thank you all for doing all that. And uh, it's, it's such a blessing to be a part of this congregation. It really is. I am David Grantham. I'm not on staff here. I'm one of the members. Thank you all for being here this morning. You have a lot of choices. There's a lot of competition for coming to the Lord's house. And you are the faithful remnant. I don't know what the rest of your day is going to be like, but we did get one thing right. Amen. We came here to encourage one another, hear the preaching of God's word, and to rejoice in the fact that Jesus, he's already resolved the biggest problem that we have, if you're a Christian. If our lives end today, we're going to be infinitely better off. I don't think anybody in here is looking forward to dying, of course. But your biggest problem has already been resolved, Christian. All the sins that you've committed, past, present, and future, they've been forgiven. They've been washed, as we sang, washed because of what Jesus did on the cross, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Now, let's turn to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30. And see what Solomon has to say here. The title of this sermon this morning is The Wise Evangelist. The Wise Evangelist. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30. Solomon says, he says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Now, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, I want to make a point here. There's one in the front of the, uh, in the back of the chair in the front, in, to the front of you. That is our gift to you. Take that Bible home with you. The physical characteristics of that Bible are not holy. It's the message that is inside of it that is inspired and holy. Take the Bible, highlight in it, underline in it, dog ear the pages, make, make notes. This is our gift to you. When we come to the house of the Lord, we need to be prepared to follow along with the preaching of God's word. And we need to be studying God's word every day. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Witnessing, evangelism, apologetics, Having these religious conversations, there's very few things that strike more fear into the heart of a Christian than contemplating engaging someone in one of these religious conversations. I mean, immediately those things come to mind. What if, what if I run into one of these angry atheists? They all, they all seem so smart. They have a PhD or, or what have you. They, they seem so smart, so intellectual, you know, so erudite. Yes, I said erudite. I had to look it up too. But it's very fitting for many of these people because their God is their education. Erudite means someone that has gained a lot of knowledge through study and they're very proud of it. What if we come across someone like that? What about a pompous, arrogant professor of Darwinian evolution? You Christians, you can have your Jesus, you can have your God, you can have your religion. I'm going to stick to science and that which is proven, that which I know is real. What if you come across one of those? Or what about the current topics that are raging in our country right now? The angry abortionist. It's a woman's body. It's her right to choose. Keep your hands off of her. Or what about the LGBTQ thing? 
You know, after you talk to some of them for a little while, you begin to wonder, man, I'm, I might actually be a hater after all, you know? They turn you into a nod, and before you know it, the conversation's going somewhere. You're like, man, how do I get myself out of this mess? The majority of the conversations that we're gonna have when we're out soul winning, as Solomon calls us to do, is not gonna be with those people. It's not. You know who it's gonna be with? It's gonna be with your neighbor, who is a genuinely nice person. Oh, they believe in God. They're not real, you know, religious. And they think they're a good person and they think their good works and being a good person is enough to get them to heaven. That's who your majority of conversations are gonna take place with. Is it with a neighbor, someone that's a friend of, a coworker and so forth. And it is indeed, it's just a conversation. But all of these things, when we put them all together and we, we start thinking about going out and, and engaging in this activity, it all seems so overwhelming, does it not? Yet Solomon tells us, he who wins souls, that's you and I, Christian, he who wins souls is wise to do this. Now, wisdom is the judicious application of knowledge. It's the proper use of knowledge. A wise person, we, we, we notice them. They seem to have the best means to accomplish something. They seem to carry themselves or comport themselves in a certain way. And you go, that's a, that's, that's a wise person. I admire them. I could, I could learn from them. And you might be saying to yourself, well, I really don't consider myself to be that wise when it comes to these issues. Well, sure, I can hold my own on maybe a few of these religious topics, the exclusivity of Jesus. The Bible doesn't have mistakes. But when it comes to these contentious issues, these contentious people I don't, I don't know. I just, I just don't think I can handle that. Well, let me, let me ask you a hinge question this morning, Christian. Let me ask you this. Those contentious people, that angry gay rights activist, that militant Darwinian evolutionist, your son or daughter that comes in from college whom you thought all their life was a born-again Christian and now says, I don't know about this, mom and dad. I've learned a lot of things. Let me ask you this. Do you want them to get saved? Do you have a desire for them to get saved, to have their sins forgiven? And of course, the answer is yes. And what about your neighbor, that backslidden Baptist or that cafeteria Catholic? Do you have a desire to see them get saved? What about your mom and dad? What if they're not saved? What about your spouse? Maybe you're in one of those you know, unequally yoked relationships. Do you want them to get saved, your child to get saved? You know, we can learn a lot about the mechanics of sharing our faith, and that's what I'm gonna teach in our Sunday school class coming up. We're gonna learn a lot of things. Bring your hard questions. We're gonna cover a lot of things. But when it comes to sharing our faith, you know what it is? You know what all this is about? It's a heart issue. Does your heart want them to get saved? And for those of us that have been a Christian for a while, I think it would do us all good if we would reflect back to remember what it was like to be unsaved. Remember what you and I were saved from. Remember what Jesus saved us out of, amen? You take that little YouTube video of your life before you were a Christian and you play it in your mind. That kind of has a way of humbling us, does it not? It softens us to these callous, contentious people out there. It kills the pride that has crept into many of us who have been doing this for a long time. 
when we, we reflect back, would you like to have your life story played this morning before you were a Christian up on the big screen here? I don't think any of us would. That kills that self-righteous, erudite pride that we tend to let creep into us sometimes. And it softens our heart. We see unsaved people acting like unsaved people. And we go, I can't believe they're acting like that. Well, that was you and I before we got saved. We were the same way. Maybe we weren't the angry abortionist or the LGBT crowd or something like that. But that was us before we were saved. I remember in my very brief career at LSU, walking by a Gideon who was handing out a New Testament. And I just said, no, nah, I don't want one of those. How ironic, some years later, I would get saved when a Gideon witnessed to me and have been a Gideon for 30-something years now. That's the way God works, amen? God changes us when we become born again. He changes our hearts. So back to the subject at hand. Why do we share the faith, share our faith with people, including strangers? And I'll tell you this, having been in the evangelism game for many, many years, it is infinitely harder, more difficult to share your faith with someone that you're very close to than it is with a stranger. You're not gonna see the stranger again, but your mom, your dad, your son, your daughter, your spouse, those are the ones that are very, very difficult to share your faith with because they know you. They knew you before you were saved. And guess what? You're gonna have a continuous ongoing relationship with them after this conversation takes place. It is much more difficult to witness to someone in your own family than it is a perfect stranger. So why do we do this? What is our motivation? Well, there's several. And you're not gonna see these verses up on the Bible, but there's three words I would like you to remember when it comes to the unsaved. Perish, condemned, and wrath. Jesus talks about this in John chapter three, probably the most well-known verse in all the Bible, John three sixteen, right? And we always focus on having our sins forgiven, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him will not perish but has everlasting life. We focus, and rightfully so, on the everlasting life. But what about that word perish? What if someone told you when you went home today, that a loved one had perished. And then we go on to John chapter three, verse 18, and there's another word in there called, uh, that it is condemned. That is what we call someone who's been sentenced. They are condemned. He who is condemned has no hope. They're not gonna get out of jail. And the unsaved person, the Bible says, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son. Lost people, we often think before we were Christians, a lost person thinks, I've got to commit this egregious sin and then God's done with me. After all, I'm a pretty good person, especially when I compare myself to Adolf Hitler or somebody like that. But the lost person is lost already. They're condemned already. When you commit one sin, one sin, you're condemned already and your sins have not been forgiven because you have not believed on the only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And then you go on down to the last verse in that chapter. And John says that the wrath of God abides on that person. There's a lot of things in life we don't want, but I would think at the top of the list is God's wrath abiding upon us. So when we look at these unsaved people, our hearts should be softened because they're gonna perish. They're condemned. 
and the wrath of God abides on them. Our role, Christian, your role and mine, we want to warn them. They're like a blind person headed for a cliff. It's inevitable. Unless they turn, they're going to fall. They're going to perish. And we want to warn them. There's a fall to come. Please turn from it. When we reflect on the fate of the lost and realize that that was our condition at one time, and if God had, been not, God had not been so kind to save a wretch like me, and I had died in my sins, and then, of course, God being just, he would have gave, us, gave me justice, and you can't let a guilty lawbreaker go, and God would have gave me what I deserved as a guilty moral lawbreaker, and he would have rightly condemned me to hell forever. Hell is a very real place, and there's no hope of ever getting out of that, uh, getting out of hell ever. And when we reflect on this, it should, again, soften us and then make us in our inner being say, how can I not go and at least do my part, do what God has called me so that these people can be saved? God was so kind and so patient to allow you and I to live to a time when he ordained it that we should be saved. Someone witnessed to you, someone gave you a Bible, somebody invited you to come to church or some event, somebody was instrumental in your life or, or several people. Why should you and I not be that person? I'd also like to bring to your attention when it comes to witnessing, I, I think you'll find this very helpful if you don't already know it. And I wish someone had taken the time to explain this to me when I was a new Christian. So we're going to get a little granular here on our theology. We need to go out and win souls, they say. We need to be soul winners. We need to see people get saved. We need to bring people to Jesus. In reality, those words are actually very poor theology. That's really Christianese. You won't find literally doing those things commanded of us in the Bible. It's Christian speak. And why, why is this important? Why am I bringing it up? It's important because it gives the impression that you and I save people. You and I don't save anybody. The Lord saves people. And when we're told we got to go out and get them to make a decision, get them to ask Jesus into their heart, get them to say the sinner's prayer. And if you got saved via that theology, it's poor theology, but you got saved, amen. The important thing is you're saved. But none of that is sound theology. You won't find that in the Bible. And it makes Christians nervous because we think, you know, we have to go out and get everything just perfect. And I don't want to mess this up. And it often makes the Christian feel like I've got to be God's pitch man. I've got to, I've got to sell God, you know, tell you why God's better than beer and God's better than football. That's none of that is theological. None of that is sound. Again, you and I don't save anyone. The Lord saves them. Take that yoke off of you. You don't save people. That's how cults work. We cannot save ourselves, much less any of our fellow sinners. D.L. Moody, the great preacher who lived in Chicago in the great 1800s, D.L. Moody, Dwight Moody, says that one day he was walking down the street and a drunk came up and slurred to him, Brother Moody, I heard you preach the other day and I got saved. You saved me. And Dwight Moody responded to him, it certainly appears that I saved you, sir. We don't save people. The Lord does the saving. And conversely, you cannot do such a poor job of witnessing that it results in someone not getting saved. 
Someone's salvation is not dependent upon your articulation of the gospel. God's not going to save you. God did not not save you because your friend did a poor job of presenting the gospel. Take that yoke off of you. You can't blow it so bad. I'm going to tell you something. I'm all about the evangelism, giving out tracts and doing this. And 99.9% of the time that I've done this, including yesterday in Walmart, I was in Bogalusa working on one of our airplanes. And when I left, Kathy asked me to stop and get a few things. And I did. And while I was in there, I just handed out a few gospel tracts. And when I left there, after every single person actually said, thank you for that, I thought, you know, I should have done this or I should have done that. You're always going to feel like you could have done a better job. Don't buy into the lie that you save people. You've got to get it right. You've got to close the deal. Don't, don't buy into that. None of that is true. And don't buy into the lie that a successful witnessing encounter is determined by someone dropping to their knees and crying out to you, what must I do to be saved? Please, I'm begging you, tell me, for, tell me, tell me what your hope is that lies within you. That just doesn't happen very often. That's not necessarily what a successful witnessing encounter looks like. It's not. Typically, a witnessing encounter will go something like this. It's going to be a casual conversation. It's just going to take a few minutes. You're going to answer a few questions. You're going to present the gospel, maybe perhaps offer to pray for them. They're going to thank you for the conversation because you actually care. We're the Christians. We care. And then you're going to go on your way. That's a typical Christian encounter with someone where the Christian evangelizes. You let love swallow your fears and you glorify God by telling someone about the best thing ever. That's God is glorified in that encounter. It doesn't have to be this life-changing event. And maybe, maybe it will be. Maybe someone will get saved right then. But don't determine the quote-unquote success of your encounter by whether or not someone fell to their knees and repented of their sins. We, we do pray that God would do that, of course. But it's successful in that you did what God has called you in your sphere of influence. You let love swallow your fears. You glorified God. You, you, your mouth was dry. Your hands were wet. Your knees were knocking. You're wondering if that little old lady in line at Walmart behind you is about five foot nothing might be actually disguised as an MMA fighter. And as soon as I start talking about Jesus, she's going to choke me out. She's not, but that's what we think in our minds, right? Man, the roughest looking guy I saw yesterday, I guarantee you this guy got, was just out of, I did a prison ministry for years. I guarantee you the guy yesterday, that I, the last guy I gave a track to at Walmart, I guarantee he just got out of the joint. There's no doubt. He was more thankful than just about anybody else that looks like us that I gave a track to yesterday. No, his encounters took 10 seconds each. He was very thankful for that. You let love swallow your fears, and yes, I do get nervous sometimes. And oftentimes people will ask you, well, how many did you lead to Jesus? This is typically asked of pastors. How many did you lead to Jesus? You know what you can tell them? Every single one of them. And what they did with Jesus, that's between them and Jesus, right? You led them to Christ. What they do after that, that's between them and Jesus. We need to get this settled in our minds. This calms us. It, it, it slows us down. It encourages us to know that, lets us know that, I'm doing my part as called by God. I'm going to be like Solomon. I'm going to be wise. I want to win souls in, in proper context there. And you know what? As I go along and do all these things, I'm going to leave all the results to the Lord. I'm going to do my part. And of course, we know the Lord will do this. 
So how do we enter into this? What's the practical means of doing this? Well, we start with prayer and study. That's why I encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, take the one that's in front of you this morning and become a student of it. Become a student of your craft. Solomon also says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 11, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. So if we briefly look at this passage, we dissect it backwards. This was written about 900 years prior to Christ. We're given by, uh, the words are given by one shepherd. And of course that shepherd, he's referring to God in the form of Jesus. We use the words of Christ. We use the word of not a shepherd, but we use the words of the one shepherd, of Jesus, the true shepherd. And these words are given to his flock, that's you and I, to be used. The shepherd has provided these words for us. It is his words we're to use. The words of the Bible are our two-edged sword. You know, there's many religions that spread their belief literally at the tip of a physical sword. Convert or off with your head. Still going on today. Christianity is spread by words. It's spread by what you and I say and what you and I do. The Bible is sufficient with all the words that we need. When you talk to someone who might be a Buddhist or someone who wants to talk about Hinduism or Muhammad or Vishnu or Buddha or Allah or any of these things or some of these modern day philosophers, you know, Jordan Peterson, we don't need any of their words. We don't need any of that. The Bible is sufficient. The required sayings are there. They're given by one shepherd. We don't have to study these other belief systems. It's not required of you. And we use these words, the words of God. Second Timothy chapter three, verses 16 and 17, a very well-known verse, second Timothy three, 16 and 17. Paul says, all scripture is given by God, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture has the answers. We rely on the Bible to share our faith. God has provided us the very words we need in this tasking. And Solomon says, we are wise to use them. Our faith is a dynamic faith. It's a faith that is on the offense. It's not offensive. We don't try to be offensive, but it is an offensive on the move faith. You may not feel like it in America today. Everybody's stressed. Everybody's worried. Everybody's anxious. And Christian, you may feel like you're on the defense. Well, stop. You're not on the defense. You should be on the offense. You have, you know why this is occurring. Anytime a person or even a nation turns its back on God, it never ends well. We're ahead of the curve. We have the words of God right here that said this is the ultimate in reality. These are the wise words of scripture. And when we use them, Solomon reminds us that you and I are wise and we want to use them wisely. Biblical Christianity is the ultimate in reality. It's real. You know, you want to get a dose of reality? Go preach this message. Go live your message in about 75 countries around the world. It's not going to go well, according to our standards. 
Being a biblical Christian is the ultimate in reality. And ultimately, we want to share this reality with the lost people, just like when someone shared it with us. The words of scholars are like well-driven nails we saw in our first verse. When we use the words of Christ, it nails things down. It makes it firm. We don't have to worry if we have it right or if we have it wrong. It's the words of God. And when we argue with someone, not bicker, but argue perhaps like two lawyers in court, we don't bicker, we don't shout people down. We may have to elevate our voices if we're out open air preaching, and that's what I do. And, and my dear friend Alex Payette here, my ministry partner, we've been doing this for 13 years. We have to lift our voice up, but we don't bicker. We don't shout people down. Now, they don't play by the same rules, of course, when you get a good heckler. Um, but we argue like two lawyers in court respectfully, right? We share our faith firmly. And we understand that the gospel may indeed be offensive, but we don't need to be offensive in the manner in which we share it. And when we argue, no matter what the topic is, we want to argue from a biblical worldview. Let the unsaved person, let the unconverted person, let their argument be with the Bible and not with you. We want them to open the words of the Bible. We want them to open the Bible and read the words of it. I've had many people tell me, and maybe one day when we get to heaven, we'll find out how it worked. Well, I, I challenge them. Have you ever actually, they, it's amazing. So many people will quote the Bible and said, have you actually read that? No. I said, well, go open the Bible and read it. Well, I'm going to go do that, you know, thinking they're going to find some fault with it. Of course, that's what we want them to do. We argue from a biblical worldview. And let me make note of this. We are never at, you are never at an intellectual disadvantage when you're arguing, arguing from a biblical worldview. You're not, no matter what the topic is. I love what my buddy Ray Comfort says. You know, and this has happened, I've experienced this many times, especially on college campuses. Oh, what's your education? Do you have a degree or a PhD in physics or molecular biology? And I love what Ray says to tell him. And if you don't, maybe you don't have a seminary degree or a college degree or barely got out of high school. Doesn't matter. You tell him, I got a BA. What's that? Born again. That's all you need. You need to be born again. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. Your brain changes when you become a Christian. And so if someone asks you about your education, you just tell them, I've got a, I've got a BA. So this topic ought to be real easy for you, you know? and you roll into it. You are thus eminently qualified to enter into the spiritual conversation, into the spiritual battle. Paul says in Colossians chapter two, verse three, this is a good reminder for us. This is one you should memorize. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They're accessible, accessible to you, Christian, when you are in Christ, you're an heir to Christ, wisdom and knowledge. And you and I would do well to deploy this wisdom and knowledge. Go ahead and dive in. Go ahead and jump in. Victory is already assured because God has been glorified because you've said, thus says the Lord. And it's not gonna go well sometimes. They're gonna ask you questions. You're not gonna have the answer. You come back home, you study, you learn, you go back out. We're always learning what God wants. We're always learning what God's message is for us. So how are we to employ and deploy these words? 
Let's look at Ephesians chapter six, verses 19 and 20. Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. Paul's under house arrest. He's writing a letter back to his former congregation in the city of Ephesus. He pastored there for three years. When he left, it said that they cried. They loved their pastor like we love Brother Sam. And Paul left after pastoring for three years to continue on what God had called him to do. And here it is a couple of years later, and Paul, through all the trials and all the, the shipwrecks and all these things, he's now in Rome under house arrest. And what does Paul do being a great pastor, being the greatest evangelist who ever lived? What does he, what does he do? He writes back to the congregation. It's as if Brother Sam had been arrested two years from now. We're all heartbroken. We're worried. We're upset. And, and he writes us this letter. Is, is this not a pastor? He's in jail or under house arrest. He can't leave. And for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly and to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Man, we're the ones that need to be speaking boldly. He's already in jail for speaking boldly. This is what, this is what Paul is telling us to do. This pastor, he's writing back to the church in Ephesus, telling them, pray for me that I may speak boldly. How, how, hum, how more humbling can you get to read this letter? Our beloved pastor, who we cried when he left, we didn't want him to leave, who, who, who tended his flock compassionately for three years, who is now under house arrest, unsure of what's gonna happen to him. And he writes to us, hey, pray for me that I'll speak boldly, boldly. We open our mouth. We need to speak the words like Paul did. Friendship evangelism, it's not friendship, nor is it evangelism. We are to be the best neighbors and the best employees and friends and so forth. Of course we are, but that is not evangelism. Witnessing and overtly talking to someone, that is what evangelism is. That's what we're called to do in the Bible. And if we're waiting around trying to be the best overt Christian in front of our neighbor, waiting them to, man, maybe one day they'll, they'll ask me for the hope that lies within. What if they die? <laughs> what if they move? All that time passed while we're waiting on someone to ask us. That's like going to a criminal and saying, hey man, what do you think about the police station? Matter of fact, come on down to the police station. Let me, let me show you a few things. They're not interested in that. Friendship evangelism should, what it should do is then when we do have that overt conversation with those with those unsaved people, our lifestyle should back up what we're saying. It should say to the unsaved person, they do live that lifestyle. They're telling me they have the right to say that. If boldness is required, then there must be some element of danger involved. At a minimum, a fear to be overcome, which begs the question you and I should ask ourselves, we're compelled to ask ourselves, when, if ever, has my Christian walk required boldness? What have I done for the Lord which required courage? Paul says in Acts 19.8, and he went, it is said of Paul in Acts 19.8, 
And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Are you and I prepared to speak boldly, to reason and to persuade others concerning the kingdom of God, Jesus and the Bible? And if not, then we must ask ourselves, why not? Perhaps it's fear, but what type of fear is it? I'll speak for everybody in this room because it's applicable to me. I don't want to get embarrassed. That's what it is. I don't want to be embarrassed. That's what my fear is. It's timidity. Yet, Paul also tells us in 2 Timothy, for God, battery going dead? Okay. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That's what God has called us to do, and he's given us that. It's okay to be nervous. I was nervous yesterday in Walmart before I handed out those tracts. It's, it's to be expected. It's completely normal. But we need to have a spirit of love for God and for our fellow man. Reflecting back on their fate, it should cast out that paralyzing fear that we have that stops us from being active and sharing our faith. Don't let fear stop you from doing the important things that God, God has called you to do. God has given us a sound mind and don't rely on feelings and emotions. Rely upon discipline. Discipline yourselves as we all should to be good followers of Christ. Feelings and emotions are not enough to sustain us, but discipline will. We need to be prepared You'll notice in the New Testament in particular, there's a lot of very military language, militaristic language. And again, we don't spread Christianity at the tip of a sword. Our sword is the word of God. There's an old hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers. This is us, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ the royal master leads against the foe, forward into battle, See his banners go. And that's you and I. I came up with eight things that you and I should be doing and considering as good spiritual soldiers. And they convicted me. Number one, a good soldier moves to the sound of battle, not away from it. A good soldier advances toward the sound of the battle. He or she does not turn his back and run away. That's a commitment. We need to be committed to moving towards the spiritual battle. A good soldier has considered the cost, knows the risk, and advances anyway. A good soldier is determined. He or she wants to do his part. I know what is at risk. I know the risk, and I'm going to advance anyway. A good soldier is always mentally prepared for battle. A good soldier becomes a student of the battle. He understands the enemy. He, under, he probes for their weakness. A good soldier is constantly playing the if-then game. If this happens, then I'm going to do this. Here's how I'm going to respond. Number four, a good soldier does not allow himself to be paralyzed with fear thus becoming ineffective in battle and letting his buddies down. If you want to go out witnessing, take some 
with you. Don't let that fear paralyze you. You need to be, and I need to be, disciplined. A good soldier identifies the threats, assesses them, and then either attacks or steers clear. You don't have to witness to every single person you encounter. And if the encounter starts going bad and in your heart, in your gut, you're going, this is not good, leave, leave. You don't have to stay there. You initiated it. You started it. You're in charge. Then leave. You consider the cost. A good soldier maintains situational awareness, thereby avoiding ambushes. A good soldier is always vigilant. A good soldier will make mistakes, but he learns from them. It's called experience. And then, after having done all this, he or she re-engages into the fight because the cause is worth fighting for. And being a good soldier for Christ has nothing to do with your physical acumen or your gender. You're to be the good soldier where God has planted you within the sphere of your influence. My buddy Alex and I, as I said, we go out open air preaching. Our wives go with us. We have a group of eight or 10 of us. A few of y'all have been out there with us. And my thing may not be your thing, but I'm just gonna say, statistically speaking, in a room this size, I'm not gonna prophesy, of course, but there's a few of you men that need to join us out there doing some open air preaching. We have a way, we teach, we show you how to do it. And there's others in here that need to go home today and start praying about witnessing to their neighbor or to their son or their daughter or grandma or grandpa. There's somebody that is on our heart. And as a soldier gains experience, he becomes more skilled and comfortable in battle. Experience is the best teacher if you get a second chance, right? So go engage. Victory is already assured. In 2004, I was teaching a Sunday school class and I said, there's got to be more to this. There's got to be more than Lifeway and some of these other silly things that we were teaching or, because that's what we do. We teach what we're, we're given in the Southern Baptist circles. I know we're not Southern Baptists here anymore. I get that. And I said, there's got to be more because I'd been sharing my faith for a number of years, the old Southern Baptist way, because you want to be obedient. Ask Jesus into your heart. You know, get him to say the sinner's prayer. And I hated doing that, but I wanted to be obedient. So I did it. And many others did too. And I was talking to my buddy Melvin, who's sitting here. And I said, Melvin, there's got to be more that we can teach than this. And he says, and a week or two later, he brought some DVDs in. And those DVDs were Living Waters, Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron. He said, you ever heard of Ray Comfort? I said, nope. He said, you heard of Kirk Cameron? I said, well, I'm an 80s guy. Of course, I know Kirk Cameron is. He said, I'm telling you, these are different. I was very skeptical, but out of respect to Melvin, I, I respect his opinion. I said, I'll watch him. And I threw the DVDs in, DVDs in and God used that ministry, Living Waters ministry, to change me, to change my wife, to change our marriage, to change our lives, to change our children, to change our future. It changed us, this biblical teaching. And the first thing I thought was what everybody, got, everybody thinks is, why aren't we all being taught this? What we're being taught is wrong. It's incorrect. No wonder nobody wants to go out and witness it. Again, you have to feel it. You feel like you're God's pitch man or salesman. And I began to read and study the biblical teachings in there. And as God often does, he's, I'm a professional pilot. 
And he supernaturally, out of nowhere, suddenly started arranging that I would go to Los Angeles several times a year. And that's where Ray and those guys, that's where the ministry is. So I said, I'm gonna, when I go out there, I'm going to go to that ministry. I'm going to find out if this is some whatever. You can imagine what I was thinking. I was encouraged, but I, you never know, right? And I went out there and I met Ray and I didn't meet Kirk. I met Kurt later, but it was a real deal. Ray Comfort is the real deal. He's the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. His humility is a ministry unto itself. So I started going year after year. And what do you know? The next thing I know in 2009, I tell Kathy, guess where we're going? She goes, where? I said, we're going to Southeastern. I got my milk crate. I'm going to go open air preach. You can't imagine what goes through your mind the first time you're driving that 30 minute drive from Covington to Southeastern. You've become one of them. What are you doing? Have you lost your mind? You want to learn the meaning of stark mortal terror the first time you go do that? The first time you do that, you will. So Kathy and I went and a couple of other folks showed up and we had a crowd of probably a hundred people for two hours. And what did I say? The first time, when I got down, just like the first time you used to skydive and I first time you land, you're like, wait, when can I go again? And you want to get back up on the box and keep going because you have the answers and you see people, their countenance changing when you, you tell them this and you see people, they're, they're listening and they don't have to be there. And you think, Lord, thank you for counting me worthy of going and doing this. And Alex and I, we've been doing this for 13 years now. This will start back in the fall. Sharing our faith where God has called you is what God wants you and I to do. It's okay to be nervous. It's okay to be scared. And I want to wind this up here with a, a, a verse here at the end, but I want to quote Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said, we must school and train ourselves to deal personally with the unconverted. We must not excuse ourselves, but force ourselves. And boy, he's right about this when you get started but force ourselves to the irksome task until it becomes easy. Sharing our faith is not always easy, but it's one of those things when you get through, just like yesterday at Walmart, I don't know if I got everything else right yesterday. I probably didn't, but I know I got one thing right. I handed out a few gospel tracts, and maybe one day when we get to heaven, those gospel tracts will have played a part in God's plan of saving some of those people. I'll leave you with this verse, Isaiah 6, 8, a very familiar verse. Isaiah says, God is speaking to him here. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord say, and whom will go with us? And then I said, here I am, send me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are kind enough to save us. Lord, thank you for your patience. Lord, thank you for your powerful word that we no longer have to be concerned about our destiny, Lord. Thank you for your unimaginable love and grace extended towards us, Lord. And Father, for those that are in here that are not Christians, Lord, I pray they will dwell on these things, consider their eternity, and turn in repentance and faith to you this very day. In Jesus' name, amen. At the end here in just a moment, some of us will be standing down here, the elders. If you have any questions whatsoever, salvation or need any counseling, we'll be here.